Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. About seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Stephen Bucci. He uh, has been for three decades an Army Special Forces officer, a top Pentagon official. He advises many on how to secure their environments. He's also a visiting research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about America's heated debate on how to protect our children at school, and he's come up with four uh, ways to do that um, immediately. So we'll talk with him about that. We're also going to talk with William Martin. He is the author of A Prophet with Honor, the Billy Graham story. He was asked by Billy Graham himself some time back uh, to write this um, more thorough uh, telling of his life story that includes the context in which he began his ministry uh, and throughout. And Billy Graham specifically asked that he would uh, share his warts and all so that this would be a, a, a uh, accurate telling or retelling of his life story. William Martin will join us to talk about that. Again, A Prophet with Honor is the title of the book. And then uh, later in the program, we're going to share a couple of interviews. So we have been uh, encouraging you to check out opportunities to save on tuition for Christian schools in our community. And while many of you have responded and we're so excited to uh, consider that there are families who are sending their sons and daughters for a Christian education and have taken advantage of our listener savings, we want to encourage those of you who've been perhaps thinking about it or just now learning that there are tuition discounts available and urge you to go to the website listenersavings.com and there you can find the the, uh, tuition tab and find out uh, which schools remain with uh, tuition discounts. The interviews you're going to hear today are schools that do still have tuition discounts available. We'll do the same tomorrow and give you an opportunity to listen in on those conversations to consider if the schools are located in the right area and they're a right fit for your sons and daughters. So that's coming up uh, later in today's program. Well, I had a lineup of what was going to be the main subject of uh, at least this segment of the program, and there was a significant amount of breaking news. We learned just moments ago that President Trump uh, announced his intention to replace Secretary of Veterans Affairs David Shulkin with Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson, now the, the physician to the president. It marked the latest in a string of rather swift White House replacements in recent months. The president also announced that Robert Wilson uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness would serve as interim VA secretary pending Jackson's confirmation. The president tweeted that he was thankful that Dr. Uh, David Sulkin's service to our country and for the for our great veterans. Uh, Jackson has served as the physician to the president since 2013 and gained a national profile earlier this year for holding a sweeping press conference on Trump's health. Well, the VA is uh, government's second largest department. It's responsible for nine million military veterans and more than 1,700 government-run health facilities. The selection of uh, Wilkie bypasses VA Deputy Secretary Tom Bowman, who's come under criticism for being too moderate to push uh, Trump's agenda of fixing veterans' care. Rumors had been swirling for weeks about Shulkin's uh, future amid investigations into alleged spending abuses and reports of internal uh, dissension at the VA. In February, the VA's internal watchdog found that Shulkin had improperly accepted Wimbledon 
uh, tennis tickets, and his then chief of staff had doctored emails to justify his wife traveling to Europe with him at taxpayer expense. Shulkin agreed to reimburse the government more than $4,000 in that case. Representative uh, Mike Kaufman of uh, Colorado, a Marine combat veteran who called for Shulkin to resign after the February watchdog report, said in a statement today that Shulkin had done nothing to uh, clean up the culture of bureaucratic incompetence that's defied uh, leadership at the VA. A separate VA watchdog investigation due out in this uh, coming week is looking into a complaint that Shulkin asked his uh, security detail to accompany him to a Home Depot store and cart furniture items, according to two people familiar with the allegation. Uh, Shulkin attributed internal drama at the agency to a half dozen or so political appointees who were rebelling against him and Bowman, insisting he had White House backing to fire them. Whether or not they were fired, we don't know. We also learned that Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz announced today that he's going to review potential Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act abuses by both the Justice Department and the FBI following requests from Congress and Attorney General Jeff Sessions. The Office of the Inspector General releases, uh, released rather a statement on Wednesday outlining the start of that review, which read as follows. The OIG will initiate a review that will examine the Justice Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation's compliance with legal requirements and with applicable DOJ and FBI policies and procedures and applications filed with the U.S. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court relating to a certain U.S. person. The statement uh, read, as part of this examination, the OIG also will review information that was known to the Department of Justice and the FBI at the time of the application, at the time they were filled out, uh, or about an alleged FBI confidential source. The uh, statement added that Horowitz also would review the department's uh, relationship and communications with the alleged source as they relate to the FISC applications. And newly uncovered text messages between FBI officials Peter Stroke and Lisa Page suggest a possible coordination between high-ranking officials at the Obama White House, CIA, FBI, Justice Department, and former Senate Democratic leadership in the early stages of the investigation into alleged collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, according to GOP congressional investigation, investigators rather on Wednesday. Republican investigators provided documents uh, which they say strongly suggest coordination between the former president's uh, chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, then-Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid, CIA director John Brennan, which they say would contradict the Obama administration's public stance about his uh, hand in the process. Page uh, texted Stroke in August of 2016, saying, make sure you can lawfully protect what you sign, just thinking about Congress, FOIA, and etc. You probably know better than me. Well, a text message from Stroke to Page on the 3rd of August described former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe has been concerned with information control related to the initial investigation into the Trump campaign. And according to a report from The New York Times, Brennan was sent to Capitol Hill around the same time to brief members of Congress on the possibility of election interference. Days later, Stroke texted Page, internal joint cyber uh, CD, uh, Intel piece for uh, D, um, scene setter for McDonough, brief trainer head of FBI cyber division directed all cyber into info uh, be pulled. I'd let Bill and Jim hammer it out first, though it would be best for D to have it before the WED WH session. Well, in the text, D referred to FBI director James Comey and uh, McDonough referred to chief of staff Dennis McDonough, the GOP investigators said. Uh, So that possible coordination is being evaluated.
Also received an email earlier today, as some of you may have as well, from the Luis Palau Association. It read as follows. Dear praying friends, we had a very encouraging meeting with doctors this morning regarding dad's chemotherapy treatment. We wanted to share it with you as soon as we could. After two months of therapy for stage four lung cancer, and again, we're referring to Luis Palau, the doctors were amazed at the result from the recent CT scan and blood work. All tumors had shrunk by one-third, no new growth of the tumors whatsoever, all fluid around the lungs was resolved, blood work looked good, all tests... Uh, tested levels looked normal. Praise the Lord. The medical team reiterated that this chemotherapy treatment was only expected to slow the growth of the tumors. They never expected the treatment to actually reverse the growth. Everyone is very encouraged in praising the Lord for the wonderful news. Because of the great results, the doctors feel confident another round of this same therapy is the right step forward. So begins another two months of chemotherapy and then tests once again. Praise the Lord with us. He is good. He is faithful and his healing power is working in dad's body. Please pray for this next round of chemotherapy treatment. Although results have been encouraging, amazing, really, it's not easy on dad's body. Pray for the continued strength and peace he needs. Feel free to share this email and spread the good news. It is still a battle. The outcome is still unknown. We take it one day at a time, trusting the Lord. But today we are very encouraged on behalf of the whole family. And again, an email from Kevin Palau, who is president of the uh, Luis Palau Association. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Steve Bucci. We'll talk about some solutions to protecting kids in school. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is Stephen Bucci. He, for three decades, served as an Army Special Forces officer, a top Pentagon official, and uh, he's a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. In a Daily Signal column he recently wrote, he points out that America is continuing to the heated debate as to what to do to provide safety for kids in school. Some, he writes, mistakenly just say ban guns, or at least the ones they don't like. Others, he points out, I'm afraid, equally mistaken, say just put more guns into schools. Well, the answer's more complex and will take more effort than either of these uh, camps seem to understand. And he goes on to offer four steps to better school security. He joins us now to talk about what we can do uh, that will actually make a difference as we continue to debate uh, how to respond. Steve Bucci, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me back on the show. Well, I appreciate that uh, the Heritage Foundation has worked at coming up with solutions that will actually have an impact in schools. A lot of what's being said is uh, passionate, but not necessarily uh, useful in addressing the issue we all agree we want to do something about. Let's talk about how these four interconnected steps that you suggest will make a difference, how you arrived at these as practical means to address our our primary concern. Well, I looked at this problem, Georgine. You know, I'm a former military guy. I, I've been working for the last couple of years on uh, trying to help churches and schools to uh, be more secure in the face of, of what's going on in the world. Uh, and I realized there were four parts to this that have to be addressed. And the, the simple, you know, couple of word solutions that people, on, frankly, on both sides of the argument tend to gravitate to are just not sufficient. It's going to take a very robust and, unfortunately, a little bit complicated set of solutions working together to really accomplish this goal. Well, let's uh, let's talk about what these four um, steps are for better school security, and then maybe we'll look at each one separately. 
Okay. Uh, the, the four steps are develop an ability to have a preemptive response, uh, so something that goes on before any event. Next is to deny access or control access to the school itself. Third is to secure the classrooms, or you can actually say harden the classrooms. So if somebody does get inside the school, they're adequate uh, as a shelter-in-place location. And then the last one, which frankly is the most controversial, is to develop an on-site response capability for that school. Now, we'll talk about that in a moment, but I just want to mention that you develop it a bit more than just arming teachers in school, which I think is an important uh, thing to emphasize. Let's talk about the preemptive response. How do you... Uh, how do you uh, preemptively respond to an event that has not yet happened, but you anticipate is a possibility? Well, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, you know, today, pretty much all of these active shooter scenarios in schools, the majority of which have been done by young people, uh, have had warnings that have been sent out. Uh, You know, the propensity to use social media, to to chat with their friends, to, to post things, has made it, you know, pretty easy to tell when somebody's going to do something. Now, the young man, Mr. Cruz, down in, in Florida was really egregious. I mean, there were all sorts of warning signs there were ignored. But in most of these other situations, and there's a lot of them out there, there's usually the same kind of warning sign, maybe not to the degree that, that Nick Cruz gave out, but uh, somebody knows something and they have to report it, and then the, the authorities, whether it be the police, the school, the guidance counselor, somebody has to take action immediately to uh, stop the event from happening, and they should do it publicly, Georgine, uh, you know, let people know that it's occurred, because that can have a deterrent effect on the events that we didn't get a warning for. You write that officials must respect the legal procedure of due process, but nonetheless, action must be taken before shots are fired at all, uh, if at all possible. What can law enforcement do uh, to prevent what uh, what could happen uh, or at least the evidence that others are presenting that someone is a danger to himself and potentially a danger to the public? Well, the, the obvious ones, when someone makes a threat, that's a violation of the law. I'm pretty sure in every state in this union. Uh, So when they say, I'm going to do violence at location X, whether it's just in general or they state with a gun or a bomb or a knife, that's a threat and police can take action. Now, if someone's just walking around mumbling, you know, then it's it's a mental health issue. But they're still, you know, the legal authorities, the guidance counselors, their friends, if somebody comes to them and says, hey, Bobby is saying X. They at least need to go talk to them and then use their best judgment to act. And and if they have weapons, if they've been taking pictures with weapons, then it's time to move in and do a little more investigation and possibly, you know, apprehend that person until it's declared that they either are not a threat or that it's dealt with appropriately. The second uh, step to uh, better secure our schools uh, seems like a no-brainer, controlling access to school facilities. Uh, That certainly would have made a difference in this Florida shooting. How difficult would it be for the average school uh, to to do that, to make it difficult uh, for someone to wander onto campus? 
Well, for the most part, most schools just need to enforce the rules they already have in place. Hmm. Most schools do control access or at least try to or have policies that state that they will. But to be honest with you, most of them are pretty lax about it because they just think, well, nothing bad's going to happen here. And, gee, I know that door over there is supposed to be locked right now and they're supposed to go into the one main entrance. But, you know, I don't want to make them walk around the school, so I'll just open it for them. Uh, that kind of uh, very nice but lax uh, attitude towards access control is what opens up the door, literally, uh, in most of these cases. So follow their own rules. Have people at those access points, the, the legitimate ones that come in and out of, that have no other role but to watch for a problem. You know, if you're there to hug the kids and to talk to the parents, both of which are wonderful and and legitimate functions, you're not really doing security. Uh, they should have somebody there whose job it is to watch for anything that's that's out of place uh, and and then to be able to deal with that problem and have no other function than that. Securing the classroom is the third suggestion. Um, and the, the ability uh, for teachers to shelter in place. You mentioned many classrooms have large windows. How do you suggest securing a classroom that would uh, increase the likelihood that students would survive if, in fact, there were an intruder? Well, the first thing, obviously, is an ability to lock the door from the inside. Uh, most classrooms have this, but they need to have, in addition to the, the regular door locks, some other device that they can put on the door that stops a forced entry, so keeps somebody from breaking the door down. Uh, most school classrooms have windows in their doors for uh, reasons of, of protecting the children so there's no, nobody in there doing something they shouldn't. Uh, those, there needs to be an immediate capability to close that or cover it up and block visual access to the room. And then within the classroom, there's got to be some place to provide, hopefully, both cover and concealment. Cover is protection. Concealment is just hiding you from, from view. Uh, at the very least, you got to have concealment. Uh, you hopefully have something that would also protect them if somebody fired into the room. Uh, at the high end, there are devices uh, that can be put in the corner of the room that are bulletproof sanctuaries that can fit a class full of, of smaller kids uh, and can be locked and secured from the inside. Uh, barring that, some way, putting kids into closets, putting them into the, the cabinet, something that gets them out of sight and makes that shelter harder is necessary. And then the last part, which is, you know, the, the DHS's run-hide-fight mantra, uh, the teachers, and if the children are old enough, if they're high school kids, some way to fight that person if they get in there. The bucket full of rocks that one school has been uh, using on TV, I'm not sure that's the best answer, but something that you could strike that, that uh, shooter with and increase your chances of survival would be very helpful. Mm. Now, we're just about out of time, but you, in the fourth uh, point, point out that on-site response is very important, that most active shooter scenarios are done in three to six minutes, and the training that you advocate is more than just point and shoot, but learning to uh, negotiate, to de-escalate, and and so on. So this is not just a, who wants a gun here, good luck. Uh, You're advocating much more. Absolutely. Just a hand in the gun to anybody who would like to carry it is a recipe for disaster. That's well-intentioned, but they're just not capable of doing this very, very difficult task. 
There should be psychological screening. There should be uh, much more training than just a point and shoot. It's not like shooting on a range when there's somebody with a gun facing you, particularly now with a lot of innocence around you. Mm -hmm. So it's a much higher level of training uh, and psychological preparation. Schools are doing that already. Uh, There are uh, places where you can get that kind of training. And if you're not going to do that, you need to hire trained security guards. Uh, You know, I don't advocate one or the other. The school district should have the choice as to how they're going to address this problem. But unfortunately, no matter how much law enforcement tries, they they probably are not going to get there in time unless they're right outside your school when you call them. So there has to be somebody on site that can deal with this in those precious first few moments. Well, these are great constructive ways to um, harden, if you will, our schools for the sake of uh, student safety. Stephen Bucci, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me on the show, Georgina. I appreciate you addressing this very, very important topic. Thank you so much. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 38 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as the world is mourning the passing of evangelist Billy Graham following his death at his home in North Carolina on February the 21st, Zondervan Publishing has released A Prophet with Honor, the Billy Graham story by William Martin. Uh, Graham himself requested that Martin uh, do the project and granted him unprecedented access to the Billy Graham archives and team members, lending this work the authenticity and transparency of no other. Mr. Martin uh, writes that, as I have written in this book, I have constantly examined what I have said in an effort to make sure that I was neither shading the truth in Graham or his associates' favor out of gratitude for their helpfulness, nor taking an inappropriately negative slant as a way of emphasizing that I had not been uh, taken in by a slick manipulator. Uh, But since Billy Graham and his associates, like all humankind, have weaknesses, I determined not to gloss those over. I have tried to be scrupulously fair, and the book is certainly that. Again, the book we're talking about is uh, uh, The Life of Dr. Billy Graham, and it's titled A Prophet with Honor, The Billy Graham Story. Well, Dr. William Martin is the Harry and Hazel Chavain uh, Emeritus Professor of Religion and Public Policy in the Department of Sociology at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Since his retirement from teaching in 2005, he served as the Chavain Senior Fellow for Religion and Public Policy at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy at Rice as well. He's appeared on many national radio and television programs, including 60 Minutes, Nightline 2020, and many, many others. Uh, He has had published uh, in... uh, been published, rather, in numerous national and regional periodicals, The Atlantic, Harper's, Esquire, and many others. While researching this book, he was given unprecedented access to the Graham archives, and we are grateful that uh, he was given that access because the product is a fascinating look at the life of Billy Graham, a life that we may think we know, but this gives us much more uh, to uh, consider. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Georgine. I'm pleased to be talking with you. As I mentioned, Billy Graham himself asked you to write this story and gave you unprecedented access. Why do you think he chose you to do that? I had written an article for Texas Monthly, which is we call the National Magazine of Texas, in 1978. And uh, it was, uh, I was doing a lot of work on independent evangelists and radio and television preachers and so forth. And the editor of the, te- of the magazine asked me to write this article. It was a profile piece, and it wasn't a puff piece, but it was. Mr. Graham liked it. He thought it was fair, and he said, I think this is the best 
magazine article that's ever been written about me. Well, Mr. Graham already had her. I knew his reputation for being extremely generous with compliments, but I wanted to believe that one, so I chose <laughs> to. But, uh, but uh, that was in 79 when they actually appeared. And in 1981, he held a crusade at Rice University, the stadium. I, on my way home, I went to several services and uh, invited my students or urged them to go. And I didn't make any point to go see him because it seemed like that would be presumptuous because so many people had written about him. But after the crusade, he wrote and said, I'm sorry we didn't get together because I've always thought that article was just one of the best. And I thanked him. He said, he, he said I'd, I'd just like to come to Houston and have lunch with you. I assured him I could make room on my calendar. But uh, And then in 1985, he wrote and said, it's time in my uh, ministry and life when someone from outside, a person with the academic credentials, and um, would do, look at my ministry in life and see what place it might have in history, if any. Would you be interested? And of course, I was absolutely interested, but I, I didn't want to write a what you know an authorized biography in the sense that the uh, that the subject gets to say what goes in and what's out. And I, I when we talked about it. I said, well, I, I need to know what the conditions. He said, there are no conditions. I don't even have to read it. I trust you. There are warts on our organization and on me, and you should, you should talk about those. There are no limits. And he said, if you it was to follow us around to places, you'll need money. I said, I'll, I can take care of that. I say, I'm pretty sure that won't be a problem. He said, that's good. I wouldn't want anyone to think that this was, remember his phrase, a kept book. Hmm. Would want him to, to believe that it's, in, in, but so that was, I think. What more could a, could a person have? And I did have um, just a great deal of access, and got to go with him to and to his organization to Amsterdam to a great international convention conference, and to Paris for a crusade, and other places in the United States, and then to have spend time at his organization, then in Minnesota, and also at the archives in Wheaton, Illinois, at the Billy Graham Center. So. I got to know people said, do you know Billy Graham? Yes, I know him very well. <laughs> he, he acknowledged, he, he told me about six months after the uh, book came out. He, I remember the, the phone rang and he said, Bill, this is Billy Graham. And I thought he's going to say it's the hour of decision. But <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm about halfway through your book and I just think it's the best thing about that's been written about me. I think you know me better than anyone except Ruth and maybe better than I know myself. So it was. Uh, I, anyway, again, he was he was well known for his compliments, but uh, I chose I, I I certainly enjoyed that, and I chose to to believe it. <laughs> well, uh, he did have the chance to read it and to comment on it, and and that has to be a great um, a great compliment that he was at least satisfied with the with the work that you had done, given the unprecedented access and freedom that you were also given to write. I appreciated that you begin the book by setting in the broader context the the beginning of. Uh, Billy Graham's ministry, because as you refer to this great cloud of witnesses, there were others that preceded him. And for those who are perhaps late to the story, it's it may be difficult to understand how his ministry began and in uh, in what historic context. Yes, uh, there were there were you know, actually George Whitfield, spelled Whitefield but pronounced Whitfield, came to to the United States in the early about 19, uh, 1740 and was the first national celebrity. He preached from Georgia to Maine and filled uh, churches, but also in the Boston Common uh, and a large area he was able to speak. He must have had a thunderous voice because they've said several thousand people could hear him. 
And that was that led to the Great Awakening, which really was a revival that uh, changed the, the face of America in, a, in an important way. And then there were preachers in the, the next one of great uh, sort of singular cons- uh, importance was um, Ch- uh, Charles Grandison Finney, who, was, who stood out above other preachers, and there were lots of them, like Billy Graham stood out above, above others in the, in the 1830s and 18, uh, in that period particularly. And after that, of course, the great one of the last half of the 19th century was uh, Dwight Moody. And um, then in the early, in the teens of the 20th century, Billy Sunday. There were, again, dozens, maybe hundreds of, of evangelists, but those stood out uh, over time. And Billy Graham, coming along in the 1940s, joined that, that, uh, that luminous group of preachers who, for whatever reasons, there were different kinds of reasons, but they, they stood out and brought many people to Christ. And um, still, their, their mark lingers on. Uh, Charles Grandison Finney's book on lectures on revivals of religion was published by Oxford University Press. And I haven't checked lately, but it was still in press, in print, in, in the late 1980s. And he told how to he told how to do it, and of course, Dwight Moody's in, uh, influence um, is you know well known and, and continues. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about uh, the most complete biography of Billy Graham. Uh, He did not have a hand in it, but he did give unprecedented access to its author, William Martin. A prophet with honor, the Billy Graham story. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking this afternoon with Dr. William Martin. He's the author of A Prophet with Honor, The Billy Graham Story. It's an updated edition, and he was commissioned to do it uh, with uh, Billy Graham's blessing. And uh, it really is an expansion on what we think we may know. And fans of his autobiography, Just As I Am, will recognize many of the names and places, but it covers much more uh, of his uh, life and uh, the beginning beginnings of his ministry as well. How challenging is it to write a biography of someone that most of us think we already know? Well, it is challenging, and it's also challenging to write a biography of a person who is still alive, Mm -hmm. as as he was until February 21st. So um, one of the things that I asked for, and I didn't tell you this a while ago, that uh, I asked him to have members of his staff look, look at the go through it carefully to make sure it was factually accurate because I didn't, you know, it's, I, I didn't want him to say, well, uh, you're, we disagree with your opinion, but that's fine. I just wish it had been accurate. So it was thoroughly vetted by, by his organization, but yes, it's challenging. And, uh, I, I actually talk about that in the introduction mm-hmm. about the issues of the, the Graham people, as you would expect, were very gracious and kind and helpful to me. And so there's always the thing, I need, and you read some of that. Is, am I being am I being sucked in here? But I never felt like that. I just think that that's the kind of people they are. And when I raised criticism, there were some that uh, thought, "Well, I wish you hadn't said that." For example, in talking about his relationships with uh, with the presidents, but particularly President Nixon, who took advantage of him rather boldly, and, and that was a great disappointment to him later, as he recognized that that had been done. And um, he even said to me, he said, I felt when I saw, when you showed me all those memos, he said, that I had gotten from archives, from Nixon's archives, he said, I felt like a sheep led to the slaughter. 
And there were some people said, well, you didn't have to put that in there. I know I didn't have to put it in there, but it was it was relevant. It was true. And it was important, I think, also for other people. And Mr. Graham recognized that himself in talking about preachers who got too involved with politics. He said, they know things you don't know. They ask you to make comments and say this is a good thing when you may not know enough about it. Mm-hmm. You can be manipulated. Be careful. Yeah, one of the things that uh, you make the point, he says, I want you to be critical. There are some things that need criticizing. So he didn't imagine that his ministry was flawless, but recognized there were some things that on, in hindsight um, needed to be uh, commented on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there, you know, there, were, there were things that uh, uh, he felt... For example, I talk for a good bit, and I think it's something that most people don't know much about, is how and from the 19, late 1970s into the early 1990s, he and his team opened up religious freedom behind the Iron Curtain in a remarkable way. And a lot of that freedom remains mostly till, till today. But they made some mistakes there. They were, they were kind of naive. They, but generally, it was handled extremely, extremely well. But in talking about that, and often... The mistakes that I report were talked to me about people in their own organization and said, we were naive or we used bad judgment there. But I think I don't think that's going to cause anyone to think poorly of Billy Graham. They're going to I think that they will understand this sounds more like this. This is not a puff piece. It's not a it's not a hagiography to make him out to be a a saint with no faults. And uh, the people that have have read it um, have told me that, that they they appreciated seeing that he was not a perfect man, but an uncommonly good one. Well, I think one of the one of the reasons he wanted you to have this kind of uh, access and to tell the full story was to make that point, because he, I thought he was very careful about making sure people didn't deify him, that he wasn't the focus of the, the gospel was the centerpiece of his ministry. So I think he would appreciate and did appreciate the full telling of the story. What was most surprising to you about the story, not so much about your working with him through this, but the, the story of his successful ministry? I know one of the things that you say is sometimes he had success in spite of himself, sometimes because of an organization that was very well uh, put together. What was most surprising to you? I was well. I, I wasn't really too surprised at how thoroughly the conferences or his crusade were organized. People coming in a year, sometimes year and a half beforehand, and mm-hmm. how complex it was. I knew something of that ahead of time, but to get to watch it really up close and to see this is a well-oiled machine. Not a manipulative one, but they just they they take into account all sorts of things that I never would have thought to. I was surprised, as I already alluded to, how much his work enlarged religious freedom in the former USSR countries. Um, I was surprised in part, and this is something I knew a little bit of the history about, but when when he broke in in the 1950s, when the more very uh, narrow fundamentalists from which evangelicals stepped aside and said, we don't want to be saying, be ye separate and draw lines about it and say, only if you do all of these things and believe all of these things, just like we do, you can't have anything to do with us. He was always expansive and extending his reach and trying, be, being willing to cooperate with more and more people as long as they didn't try to tell him what to preach. Um, so he was always he had a very expansive, um, um, you know, soul and that that show um i was very much another thing that was surprising to me i I knew i really didn't know much about it 
called the Lausanne, Move, Lausanne Movement. Mm-hmm. He held, his, his organization <clears throat> held three conferences in the 70s and on up to 2000, I believe, uh, after I'd quit working on that part of the book. But they're conferences that brought evangelical leaders from all over the world together to talk about not only about how they could be effective in evangelism, but how they could adapt their message to different kinds of cultures and also to the social justice issues that existed in all those in all those cultures. So it widened the the message and the approach of evangelicals around the world. In looking back over the life and legacy of uh, Dr. Billy Graham, what do you hope your book will tell us about him that we may not have known or to at least reinforce what we thought we knew about him and his ministry? I think it will be more the latter because uh, I, I think that uh, there, were, there was not, as one of his friends said, you can split him all the way down and there's no, there's no rotten spots there, that he, he was a person who... Um, but I, I'll just I'll tell you what I think will be remembered the most will have the greatest impact without probably people recognizing it or tying it directly to him. His organization held giant conferences of itinerant evangelists in 1983, 1986, and 2000. And I attended the one in 1986 when there were nearly 10,000 itinerant evangelists from 173 different countries. And they were being schooled for about 10 days by Mr. Graham's organization on how to do evangelism in, in, their, own, in their own places. And he, he said a number of times, and in that conference, you are my successors. There's not going to be uh, – people ask me many times, who's going to be the next Billy Graham? There won't be one. Now evangelicalism has become so large and diverse and multifaceted that no one person can dominate it, regardless of talent or dedication. But nobody's going to, there are too many parts to say, let's look to this one person like we used to look to Billy Graham. But there are thousands of people who we got will be, become, as, as some of them said to me, little Billy Graham. And he said to them, you are my successors. Now, it's important to remember that Billy Graham is not an office in the Christian church that has to be filled like mm-hmm. the Pope or the Archbishop of Canterbury. There'll be people carrying on the work inspired by him, and that was what was important to him. And I think he will be remembered as a person of integrity and to quote scripture as a workman who needeth not to be ashamed. Mm. The book is A Prophet with Honor, The Billy Graham Story, a wonderful read. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for talking with us about it. Well, thank you, Georgine. I really appreciate your inviting me. Bye-bye. We're going to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. As I've mentioned earlier this week, I'm looking forward to observing Holy Week from the comfort of my home over the next couple of days. And so I'm going to celebrate or observe Monday, Thursday and Good Friday uh, away from the mic. But I'll be back live on Monday after celebrating the triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ on Sunday. We'll tell you a little bit of what's coming up next week in a moment. But I wanted to reflect back on an interview I did in the four o'clock hour of today's program with William Martin, who was handpicked by Billy Graham to write. It's more than a biography. It really is a a history of Billy Graham in the context of those who preceded him and the impact he had uh, on the uh, on the world, really, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an honest assessment. And Billy Graham himself had suggested that he wanted his warts and all to be a part of that retelling 
Anyway, the book is titled A Prophet with Honor, the Billy Graham story, and it is much broader than the biography that Billy Graham published some years ago himself. Anyway, I had that conversation earlier in the program, and I noted that Christianity Today was reporting that earlier this month, when Billy Graham was buried uh, in a funeral deemed his last crusade, the evangelist has continued to draw thousands of converts to Christ. Now, you might wonder, how on earth is that possible? But they write that his ministry partners saw the global media attention following his passing in February as a chance to showcase the gospel message that defined his life. It wasn't about Billy Graham. It was about the gospel that animated his life. Uh, they included um, explicit calls to accept Jesus in their tributes, praying that more would come to follow him through Graham's death and the reflection on his faithful ministry. More than 1.2 million people have visited the BillyGrahamMemorial.org site in just a month. That's according to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. The um, online memorial features a link to a site with a clip of Graham inviting crowds at his crusades to make a decision for Christ, followed by a list of steps for online visitors who want to pray to accept Jesus as their Savior. Well, more than 113,000 have visited that site, StepsToPeace.org, in the month since Graham's death, and 10,500 indicated they prayed to either profess faith for the first time or to renew lapsed faith, according to the Evangelistic Association. So 10,000. The page outlines his simple presentation of the gospel. It summarizes the Bible verses that point to God's love for us, our separation from him, Christ's sacrifice, and our response. And at the end, visitors are invited to admit their sin, repent, believe, and pray to receive Jesus Christ as their saviors. Those, savior rather, those with questions, they could chat live with online coaches through the Evangelistic Association. But they do make a, if they do make a decision for Christ, they're offered additional resources about Christian living and a directory to find a church in their area. Uh, as you're searching to find uh, the, for the kind of peace in your life that Billy Graham preached about throughout his whole life, the site asks, we have uh, chat coaches standing by who would love to talk with you about receiving that peace. Steps to Peace resembles the online evangelism sites that are responsible for the bulk of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association's decisions for Christ over the past several years, certainly since Billy Graham himself uh, uh, had ended his career um, hosting, being the primary speaker at his crusades. As Christianity Today reported back in 2015, the web has been a fruitful frontier for evangelistic ministries like the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, which sees the equivalent of one successful Graham crusade per day online, while its in-person events draw uh, conversions in the thousands, online outreach draws in the millions. More than 10 million people, or 5,000 every day, have clicked to pray for salvation on that site, Peace with God.net since it launched in 2011. An online ticker tracks decisions for Christ made in real time around the world. So this is a fascinating resource that continues uh, the legacy of his preaching ministry, which of course is of uh, uh, far less importance than the gospel that he preached. Uh, that it's the gospel that has the power to transform and not the preaching of it. Although we are called to do just that, to faithfully share the gospel It is not the skill or the presentation uh, that ultimately results in conversion. It is the gospel itself. It has the power uh, to transform lives. 
uh, the Billy Graham Memorial Site. They've also had strong global appeal so far. A representative said it's drawn visitors from 228 countries and territories. On Facebook, 1.8 million watched a live stream of his uh, funeral on the 2nd of March. Uh, His son, uh, President Franklin Graham, included in his eulogy a call to accept Christ in the Facebook post linked to the Steps for Peace for a Steps to Peace site is also a part of that uh, presentation. Again, the gospel remains the centerpiece of that ministry. Are you saved? Are you forgiven? Are you trusting Jesus as your savior, savior and following him as your Lord? The younger Graham asked, if you are not sure, then you'd better, uh, there's no better time than right now at Billy Graham's funeral to settle this right now and for eternity. Over his lifetime, Billy Graham uh, spoke to 3.2 million, uh, or rather, 3.2 million people responded to invitations to follow Christ at his 400-plus crusades. His colleagues and followers uh, prayed that the funeral itself and coverage by hundreds of reporters in attendance would lead more people to believe the gospel message the late evangelist preached across the globe and across the media formats for decades. And apparently, according to these numbers from the website alone, some 10,000 did just that. Well, taking a look at next week, as I'm going to be out on Thursday and Friday, uh, on Monday, we're going to talk with David Ireland. He's a pastor and the author of One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides. It's a book published by Regnery Faith, and we're once again going to take a look at what divides us, particularly within the body of Christ, where Scripture clearly says there are no divisions. This is from God's vantage point. There are He doesn't separate us according to our demographics. Uh, we are one in Christ. And how do you bridge that uh, racial and cultural divide in uh, in our time on terra firma? So we're going to talk with uh, Pastor Ireland about that. On Tuesday, uh, Charles Chris Meyer will be my guest. He's the author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. As we approach the season in which we pay feeble attention to fathers and the role they play in raising children, we're going to talk about the legacy that most men uh, want to leave uh, for their families and for the world. We'll talk with Craig Glass. He's the uh, author of Noble Journey, The Quest for a Lasting Legacy. And again, this is another uh, reflection on not just what we do today, but the imprint we leave on uh, in time that will have an impact on eternity. That's coming up on Wednesday's program. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with Brian C. Stiller, an interesting book, Uh, From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. It's a fascinating book, and I will recall um, uh, Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany uh, Bible Church reminds us that if you have a globe, you put your finger on Jerusalem, and if you uh, put your finger at the opposite end of the globe, Portland is the opposite. We're the other end of the earth. We're um, we're right across from, if you dro- drilled a hole through the center of the earth, Jerusalem would be at one end and Portland would be at the other uh, so the spread of the gospel, it probably should say from Jerusalem to Portland, but the title is From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity, and more importantly, the spread of the gospel. Uh, that's coming up on uh, Thursday of next week. And then on Friday, we'll do what we tend to do on Fridays, except for this one, of course, and that is to focus Uh, on the lighter side of the news. Just a quick reminder, this Friday is the Good Friday Breakfast. It's brought to us this year by the YMCA, and it's an excellent opportunity to hear a message about reconciliation, which is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the same spirit that Jesus gave to those uh, he promised uh, uh, he would when he ascended into heaven, saying he would send a comforter, a helper, if you will. And you're going to have an opportunity to hear how that played out in a very tragic set of events 
in which the grace of God was on full display. That's coming up this Friday at the uh, Portland Convention Center. All right, we are out of time. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. Thanks, James. Thank rather James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great Holy Week. And let's celebrate on uh, Resurrection Sunday like there's no more important day on the calendar. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.